Hello, I'm Robert T. Smith, host of Support Your Local Podcast. I want to take a moment to remind you to hit that fast forward button. That is, unless you want to hear about something good being done. Anyone who knows me knows that I love bowling. In 2016, I founded the Smith Family Bowling Scholarship Foundation, intended to honor my father's hard work and dedication to community service and award scholarships to youth bowlers throughout the nation. To date, we've awarded well over $15,000 in scholarships. If you are a bowler, know a bowler, have ever seen a bowler, or heard about anyone who has ever seen a video of a bowler, I'd love for you to help promote the SFBSF and its mission. Please go to sfbsf.com and see what we're all about. While you're there, please consider hitting that donate button and helping us make a brighter future for our youth. Again, that's sfbsf.com. Thank you for your time. And this episode is brought to you by Die Real Estate and Land Company. They are the real estate agents based in Northwest Ohio. They are the go-to company for people who enjoy the rural lifestyle and are looking to buy and sell some property. The whole team is amazing. I've used them in the past. Uh, I'm partial to Jaylene myself for obvious reasons, but uh, they're all there for you whenever you need them. If you're in the market, just drop them a line at info at diarealestate.com. That's info at dyerealestate.com. And don't forget to tell them, support your local podcast sent you. Ah, Daily bedight, a gallant night, in sunshine and in shadow. I journeyed long. What's that all about? Just a poem, one of Johnny Diamond's favorites. Let's see. Daily bedight, a gallant night, in sunshine and in shadow. Had journeyed long, singing a song in search of El Dorado. Howdy, everyone. Pull up a chair, kick up your boots, take a sip on a nice cold drink. It's Elder Pado, Season 3 of Support Your Local Podcast, where we take a look at the 1966 John Wayne classic, El Dorado, one chapter at a time. I am your host, as always, Robert Smith, coming to you from beautiful Tombstone. Yes, that one. Today, we'll be taking a look at our Chapter 3, Settling Scores. But before we do that, let's take a moment and take a bit of a a deeper dive into one of our cast and crew, a a mover and shaker, if you will, uh, one of our Hollywood stars, in a segment I call Remember the Name. You don't remember me, do you? No. You remember this hat? Well, why in the hell would I remember a hat? (laughs) And welcome back to another episode of Remember the Name. Uh, Today we're going to take a look at one Mr. James Caan, uh, Alan Berdelian Traherne, also known as Mississippi in this movie. Uh, You know, obviously this is one of the bigger names 
that uh, we are having in this movie. And it's it's nice to have somebody that's relatively contemporary. Um, you know, I know when we do these deep dives into some of these older westerns, uh, we run into such a, a cast and crew that you know these guys are in movies and TV shows that most of the people that are younger than me and probably most of the people that are even my age um, have never even heard of. You know, I just happen to know it from from growing up with older parents and, and watching the older stuff and being in love with the older stuff. Um, but, you know, Jimmy Kahn, he is a little bit more contemporary. I'm sure you're going to recognize uh, some of the stuff that we go through here today. Got his start uh, in 1961 uh, for the TV version of The Untouchables. You know, this is not the the Kevin Costner, Sean Connery uh, movie version. Uh, this is the TV version that uh, starred Robert Stack as Elliot Ness. Um, for those that uh, don't recognize that name, that is the, the former host of Unsolved Mysteries, that guy. And uh, 1964 also was in TV, was in a couple episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, his first big movie role, uh, he'd been in a few smaller uncredited roles, a few smaller roles in the in the early 60s. But uh, 1967, he's right here with El Dorado. Uh, and this was kind of his big break again, being able to you know rub shoulders with the likes of Howard Hawks and John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. Those guys that are, are bigger stars, you know, it was, it was nice to have a a fresh-faced young upstart <laughs> as an actor uh, to kind of give the, the rub for that. Uh, 1969, uh, back to TV, he is in two episodes of Get Smart. Um, that is not the the Steve Carell uh, version in the movies. This is the, the Mel Brooks written and produced. Not a lot of people uh, remember that, but uh, version with uh, Don Adams as Agent Maxwell Smart. Uh, one of the shows that I grew up watching religiously on Nick at Night. I, I, I used to love uh, Get Smart. 1971, uh, if not known for El Dorado, then probably is known uh, by now for uh, portraying uh, the, the lead character in Brian's song, um, a real tearjerker of the, of the 70s. Uh, and then 1972, the very next year, uh, the role that, let's face it, if you know who Jim, James Caan is, uh, it's probably from The Godfather. Uh, he was Sonny. He was Santino Corleone. Uh hot-tempered older brother of Michael Corleone and uh, known for me uh, for his his exit from the movie um, just the the brutality of his death scene at the toll booth and all the squibs that they had to have put on him to do all those gunshots um, for a movie that you know, has a little bit of violence. We have a couple choking deaths and, and a few shots and you know, like the shot through the eye of Mo Green, but like we remember Sonny Corleone's death. Like that was, that was a lot. Um, so definitely that was probably where most people are going to remember him from. Uh, 1974, The Gambler. This is not the Kenny Rogers Western. I wish that it was. I used to love watching those as well. Um, but this is an equally good movie. Uh, as the time of this recording, I believe it's currently on Pluto TV if you want to check it out. Um, but it's, it's a pretty decent flick. Uh, 74 is also when he would come back uh, for a cameo appearance in Godfather 2. Um, obviously, he did not play throughout the, the entirety of the movie because, as I previously mentioned, he died in the first one. Uh, but he does come back in the flashback scene at the very end of the movie. Uh, 1975, Rollerball. 76, the Mel Brooks movie, Silent Movie. 
1949. That's in 1979. He was in the movie 1941. Uh, 1988, Alien Nation. Uh, 1990, a couple of them. uh, He was in the Dick Tracy movie uh, that we previously mentioned with uh, uh, a couple of our other characters. Um, He was also in Misery, the Stephen King uh, adaptation uh, starring himself and Kathy Bates. Um, He is the the author that is uh, hurt and taken care of by Kathy Bates who is um, a super fan of his. And when he tries to leave, um, she, um, yeah, she she makes sure that he can't leave uh, in a very memorable scene from there. If you've seen it, you know it. If not, definitely go check it out. It is a great flick. In 1992, Honeymoon in Vegas. Uh, 1993, The Program, which is a movie that I've only seen once. I saw it when it first came out. It was on HBO. And I remember the, the, the commercials for it um, because the guys, it was a, a movie about a football team and there's the guys that lay in the middle of the highways, cars are flying by. I remember that part, uh, but it was actually what introduced me to the concept of roid rage. Uh, even for me, you know, at this point, having watched wrestling for about 10 years uh, at the height of Hulkamania and the Ultimate Warrior, uh, I did not truly grasp the concept of steroids, um, but the little bit in the program where it goes over the, the one character who's taken it, that is what introduced me to Roid Rage. Uh, 1996, uh, Eraser. Uh, 1999, uh, Mickey Blue Eyes. 03, for the, the kids out there, uh, you'll probably know him as the dad in Elf, uh, the Will Ferrell Christmas uh, movie. Uh, in 08, he is actually in the movie version of Get Smart. So this one is the Steve Carell version. Uh, he does play the president in that. 09, uh, he does one of the voices for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Excellent animated flick. Uh, even better book. It's one of the books that I grew up with. And much like uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, it is one of the books that has the most creepy Anima, uh, animation or drawings in this book out of anything. If you can catch a, an old school version of that, um, everybody in the book looks like they're straight out of the Black Hole Sun video. Uh, he would reprise that role in the in the follow up of uh, Clyro with a Chance of Meatballs too. Uh, but in 03 to 07, it was also in a long run series, uh, Las Vegas. I believe it was on NBC, if I remember right. Uh, but playing one of the main characters in that as well. So yeah, uh, Jimmy Khan. Definitely a a person that you're going to recognize in the roles that he's at. Um, he does have quite a few memorable ones uh, with, uh, obviously, Santino, uh, Sonny Corleone being probably the biggest. Um, but I knew him first, uh, long before I'd watched The Godfather. I'd watched El Dorado on TBS as a kid. Um, so I knew him more as Mississippi, and that's that's who he will be for, for me forever. But uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, he was born in 1940. He did uh, just recently pass away uh, on July 6, 2022. But a, a great body of work in, in there. Um, definitely, you know, this is just kind of the highlights. But, you know, take a moment, go on Wikipedia, check out his filmography. I'm sure you'll find a movie that you enjoy him in. Uh, hopefully one that you haven't watched before. But uh, that is the whole purpose of Remember the Name, after all. Uh, but uh, yes, that has been one Mr. Jimmy Khan. Let's get you back to our regularly scheduled programming. And uh, we will end today from Remember the Name. Hey, uh, 
I suppose I've asked this before, but just who, who is he? Tell him your name, Mississippi. Alan Bedillion Traherne. Well, no wonder he carries a knife. And we're back. We left off last chapter with the Duke leaving his lady crying as he rides off into the sunset. We start this chapter with the Duke riding out of the sunset. That is, he's, he's riding down the main street of a town at dusk. And there's a porch that we see with a sheriff sign out front. And there's a man sitting there with his boots kicked up on the rail. It doesn't look like Bull or uh, JP, so I don't think that we're in El Dorado anymore. It's, uh, it's funny because it's almost identical to how we often found James Garner as the titular sheriff and support your local sheriff, uh, see season one of our archives. Uh, but he was often there on the porch with his boots kicked up, uh, taking care of some rowdy riders. This man, however, is obviously asleep at the helm because the Duke has to holler, hey, to uh, startle him awake. We quickly find out that they know each other, as the man actually looks happy to see him. And we see this man, we can see another one sitting at a desk in, within the office. And I wonder why he's still just casually writing something, as if, you know, if I was the sheriff, and someone just outside my door hollered, hey, I may be a bit more alert as to what the hell's going on. And as the Duke playfully asks who would hire our sleeping guy, we find out that the man at the desk is the sheriff and is coming out to say hello. Um, apparently, the, the last time that the Duke saw either of them, they were just a few paces ahead of a posse. Which, what? It It, it makes you wonder, now... I'm not a judgmental person and until I am, but what kind of shenanigans, you're welcome, Jess, caused a posse to come chasing after these guys? You know, that's usually in the movies something that only happens for major criminals, right? You know, like, how do you end up a sheriff and deputy afterwards, you know, is, is this another case of my conspiracy theory from season one where, where Jason, and that's the James Garner Jason, not the Bart Jason in this movie. I, I know there's only like three names in all of the Old West, was running from the law and ended up a sheriff? Question mark. Curiouser and curiouser. Um, they tell him where he can go get a good meal and we cut to the inside of a nice little cantina, and there's a young lady walking to the table of the Duke, and he appears to be playing dominoes uh, with another young lady, which, poor Maudie, like, he literally just left her, in theory, that that afternoon. Um, I, I wondered when I saw this just how long dominoes had been around. And I'm not talking the pizza. I'm talking the little little wooden square game. And apparently they actually go back to either Egypt or ancient China, depending on which website you go to. And Mexican train dominoes, which kind of matches what I'm seeing on the table and what I'm familiar with as, as the game of dominoes, was introduced to Latin America by the Chinese immigrants that came over in the 1800s to work in the sugar fields. 
So I have to give them props that this is a, a nice little touch to have it here in whatever Texas, Mexico area we're, we're currently at. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a nice touch of authenticity and it's cool to see somebody playing something outside of poker. You know, it seems like cards was the go-to for all these movies. We cut outside to see a group of riders come up and dismount and they enter the cantina and the first one in is obviously someone who is supposed to be the bad guy. I mean, he has a black hat on and everything. Just saying. The, the, the Duke takes notice, but the men just come in and they get a table. They order food and drink from a, a man, presumably one of the, the waiters or the owner. But there's nothing dramatic or bullying. So, you know, whoever this guy is, he's, he's not starting out as a maniac, you know, like a, a mad dog tannin or, or anything of that, that like, you know, mean for the sake of mean, essentially. Another rider comes to the front of the cantina, and as he ties up his horse, we see a very young James Caan. And he wanders into the cantina, and the Duke is shuffling the dominoes. The waitress, who had sat down at the Duke's table when the villain walked in, now appears to be staying with the Duke and the other lady. Again, poor Maudie. James Caan circles the table of our villain and his gang, and he's catching the notice of not just the Duke, but also the villain. And we get a better look at the villain's face, and he has a whitened left eye with this long scar across his eyebrow and, and cheek underneath, um, thus obviously making him a villain, because no, no hero in the 60s of a movie would, would ever have that appearance. As Jimmy Khan circles the table... The, the man sitting next to the villain is oblivious. He's making a cigarette with his bag of tobacco. And we see as he circles the rest of the table, uh, they're also, everybody else at the table is ignorant to what's going on. So it's a nice little touch that the Duke and the villain are professionals. And it's to the point of always being situa uh, situationally aware of their surroundings. And... Khan stops. Khan! Sorry, I had to. I wanted to do that all the way through my remember the name. I had to get out of my system. I apologize. But anyways, James Khan stops and we get a close-up of him glaring down at someone at the table. He's wearing a, a light tan buckskin shirt and he's wearing a short top hat, but with the brim curled up like you would expect with a cowboy hat, if that makes sense. Uh, if you've not watched the movie, you know, please go go see it. Um, or if you aren't watching along with us, think a black hat version of the the Mad Hatter hat that Tom Petty wears in Don't Come Around Here No More, the the Alice in Wonderland video. Uh, or even even better, think of a hat that Slash from Guns N' Roses would wear. Kind of like that. And it is interesting that the hat is black. You know, we touch back to our, our Western tropes. And Khan calls the name of one of the people at the table, and we find out that it's the man that was making the cigarette, sitting next to the villain. He asks the man if he remembers him, or he remembers the hat he's wearing, both of which the man denies, and why the hell would I want to remember a hat? Um, but we'll find in this movie that this hat is actually quite memorable. It's, it's his telltale sign. 
and gets the table laughing at why he would remember a hat. So the entire time that this is going on, the villain, also wearing a black hat himself, I may point out, is staring intently at his compadre and his answers. When James Kahn accuses the man of killing the man who is wearing it, the Duke knows that the shit's about to go down. So he, he shoes the ladies away from the table. Now, despite the fact that everyone's talking in fairly subdued voices, there's no yelling, there's no shouting, anything like that, we see in the background that the band has stopped playing and now the entire cantina is attentively watching this unfold. And we find out that the man uh, killed someone named Johnny Diamond and that there were four total people involved, three and the man at the table. So apparently it was over a card game dispute. Uh, the man accused Johnny Diamond of, of being a, a card cheat. And, you know, James Conn says that he didn't have to be. He was just that good. The, the villain smiles at the notion that one of his men killed someone. But it quickly goes back to intense scrutiny back and forth between Khan and, and the, the other man. And James Conn claims he'd already found the other three and killed them. And now this man needs to stand up. So much like the Duke thought, shit's about to go down. Our villain tells the man, who we now know is named Charlie, to do it, as he wants to know how Khan can kill a man without wearing a gun. And he agrees with Khan that it shouldn't have taken four of them to kill Diamond. And it's a nice touch that this guy is apparently not just pure, unadulterated evil. You know, he's, he's perfectly fine with the fact that this man killed someone, that's okay, but not that it was done in a mob mentality way. So it's interesting to see how that moral compass plays out throughout the movie. I, I got a feeling we're going to see it a little bit more as we, as we go through. We get a nice cut back and forth between Charlie, James Caan, the Duke, and then back to the table as a whole. And we hear the music swelling as the tension of the impending fight happens. Nice, nice touch. I, I like questions. I have this. Um, the man, instead of standing up to fight, he leaps up and he's drawing his gun, but he doesn't get a chance to pull the trigger before James Conn reaches behind his own head and produces a knife, throwing it into the chest of Charlie. Um, Charlie falls over, presumably killed instantly and bloodlessly, I might add. Um, the villain, you can see the arm and shoulder of in the shot where the man falls over and he doesn't appear to have moved a muscle. You know, we, we cut to a wide shot and we see Khan eyeing the other two from the table. They, however, have in fact moved all the muscles as they are now completely out of their chairs and have appeared to have jumped back several paces from the table. So... Either the villain is that cool and composed that he didn't sense any danger for himself, or he's not that good at reactions. We'll, we'll, we'll see. James Conn slowly puts his hat back on, and while constantly glancing around the, the still and, and shocked cantina, he walks over to the man and removes his knife from Charlie's chest. 
of the other two guys uh, from the table, one is a bearded guy in a tan coat and hat, and one is a, a tall Hispanic guy. The the guy in tan calls out Khan, and apparently, since Khan killed the man because Johnny Diamond was a friend, what's he going to do now that he killed the man that was Tan Guy's friend? Which is fair logic. He he tells Khan to get up and get ready to, but before he finished the sentence, he tries to sneak attack and draws his gun. Before it's curtains for Khan. The, the Duke draws and shoots the gun out of the tan guy's hand. So for whatever reason, the Duke had grabbed his hat off the table when he first saw the trouble happening, when he was shooing the ladies away. And now he's wearing it. Um, I'm not sure why. Is, is, is it his lucky hat? Does he always wear his hat when he shoots? I'm, I'm not sure what the reasoning for that was. We think that he's telling Tan Guy to drop the argument by saying, just drop it. But as we cut back to a wide shot, we see he was actually talking to the tall Hispanic guy. And he's telling him to drop the gun he was in the middle of pulling. So now everyone's standing with the exception of the villain. Um, The Mexican man that was chowing down on some chili in front of their table and some guy that appears to be sitting directly behind the tall Hispanic man. Those guys are still sitting, but for the rest of the the entire room, everybody's still standing. And for those guys still sitting right behind them, once again, why the hell are people purposely directly behind someone who is obviously in the middle of a gunfight? Move just saying. The the Duke tells the, the tan guy to pick up his gun and try again. And for whatever reason, ever since having to drop his gun, the Hispanic guy's been grinning. It's it's just an interesting choice of reactions that I noticed. Like, I almost think that this is just an inexperienced actor. And he's like, he's grinning at the fact that he's in the middle of a scene with John Wayne. I don't know. Maybe he's a little touched. I, I, I don't know. The, the tan guy goes to pick up his gun, but then he asks who the fight would be with. Would it be the Duke or would it be James Kahn? And the Duke wants first dibs. There's an argument between Kahn and the Duke as to who's fighting when the villain finally steps in and tells the Duke he can't afford to lose another man. He then, to the tan man, says one of the most poignant quotes of the movie. Faith can move mountains but it can't beat a faster draw. Chef's kiss. He then tells him there's only three men that can draw that fast. One's dead, one's himself, and one's Cole Thornton. And the Duke quickly corrects him to say that there is a fourth, but that he was in fact Thornton. And at this revelation, the tan guy quickly gets as far away from his own gun as he possibly can. And the Hispanic guy is back to grinning, still not sure why. And the villain tells them both to pick up their guns real easy. And the Duke echoes this, you know, like he said, real easy. And the part I found funny is they were slowly moving to the guns when the villain said it real easy. But once the Duke confirmed that they should be moving slowly, they actually moved twice as fast. Just 
definitely when you're watching, just keep an eye out for that part. The the two then go and carry their buddy Charlie out as the Duke and the villain formally introduce themselves. And we find out the villain's name is Nels McLeod, which the Duke affirms that is who he thought he was. So something that, spoiler, this is never resolved in, in the movie. Who is the third guy? We'll, we'll find out soon enough that the fourth guy that the Duke was referring to is J.P. Hera, to which Nels was not aware. So who was this fourth guy? And is the implication that Nels, knowing this person is dead, that he faced him and killed him personally? And why would Nels even mention this guy if he's dead? You know, just, just say there's only two people I know with that speed. Me and Cole Thornton. It's, it's just a, a nice detail that I, I noticed this time watching. And um, another thing that I noticed uh, just on this very last viewing, actually, the entire time that Nels is directing the two guys through his, his introduction to Cole all the way up to the point that the Duke agrees to have a drink with him. McLeod's hand is grasping his gun. It's it's easy to miss with the other action going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. But next time you watch, keep an eye on Nels' left hand. You know, it's it's kind of obscured by the table if you're the Duke standing on the other side, but not when he was standing there getting ready to be in a gunfight. So it's just a nice little touch that, you know, the gunfire is always ready to go, but you would also think that they would draw attention to the fact that, hey, maybe fast gun guy, keep your hand the, the fuck away from your gun. Just saying. Nels attempts to employ Cole, and while they're talking, the Duke continually stops Khan from trying to leave. And we find out that his name is Alan Bedalia Traherne. To which the Duke gets wide-eyed and at the mouthful of a name, and to which Khan admits that that's why most people just call him Mississippi. And Nels gives Mississippi props for his knife work because, you know, game recognizes game. But he asks if he could use a gun, and Mississippi admits if he could, he would, but that's why he, he has the knife. We find out that Bart Jason hired Nels, and the Duke admits that the job had been his a few months ago before turning it down, and that the reason was J.P. Hera, who is, as Nels guessed correctly, the alluded to fourth man. Uh, Nels gives him the bad news that J.P. is no longer that good. You know, apparently, apparently he ran into a woman who was no good and has been a drunk ever since. Now, the Duke told these guys earlier, uh, the, the two guys on the porch, he'd been shot a few months back. And he confirmed it by telling Nels that he was offered the job a few months ago. So after leaving El Dorado and Maudie, the sheriff had time to fall in love, get left, and get totally buried in a bottle? Damn, dude, you know, like life, life just kind of came at you fast back then, I guess. Nels knows now that the Duke won't come on board and he tells him it's, you know, it's probably for the best because sooner or later, two of their kind together, they'd have to find out who was faster, to which the Duke agrees. 
Um, before leaving, Mississippi gets told again not to be in such a hurry to leave. Cole asks Nels to go ahead of them out the door, knowing the likelihood of what would be waiting for them. Uh, to his credit, uh, McLeod obliges, and he hollers for Milt and Pedro to come out and show themselves. They do, and we see it's the, the two guys from earlier, uh, the guy in tan and the, the grinning Hispanic guy. And it's a nice shot of them coming out of the dark shadows across the street. Um, you know, even knowing after so many viewings where, where they are and where they're going to be coming out of, I still can't see them until they appear. So it is a really nice shot. So tan guy is apparently named Milt and the grinning Hispanic guy is Pedro. Nels has them drop their guns and go back in the cantina and the Duke tells him he'll drop the guy's guns off uh, to be picked up at the, at the sheriff's. He then thanks him for obliging to come out first, to which Nels tells him to consider it professional courtesy. Keep that in mind. Once again, it's a nice touch for the bad guy to have somewhat of a sense of professionalism and courtesy. You know, you just don't usually see in, in these types of movies. Usually it's very, very black and white. And I'm not just talking about the colors of their hats. Um, there's not a whole lot of gray. So to see that kind of character depth in a Western is just a, it's, it's a nice touch. I like it. As Nelson Cole say goodbye to each other, they're not overtly grabbing their guns like Nelson was before. But both of them do have their hands behind the butts of their guns, you know, kind of resting on their hip, just just right there, you know, just just in case. The the Duke won't hear any of Mississippi's apology, you know, for trying to leave and 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 you know for the fact that he was thanking him for saving his life, essentially. And the Duke tells him that they need to leave to find another place to eat because, you know, Mississippi pretty much wore out their welcome there. And he, uh, James Kahn gives the, the Duke a cute little now, as if, you know, can, is he asking for permission to leave this time? It's a nice little script touch. Um, we dissolve into yet another small cantina. And this one's looking a lot like whatever that place Maudie, the sheriff and bowl were at earlier with everybody. A, a senorita asks if Mississippi wants anything else. And he seems really lost in his thoughts. The, uh, the Duke notices that he looks a little green around the gills. So maybe murder just isn't something Mississippi has quite gotten used to. He's also unsure of what he's going to do with his life now that he's completed the revenge of Johnny Diamond, which just sounds like an awesome Western. The, the Duke gives him two bits of advice. Get a different hat and learn to shoot a gun. And I'm not sure exactly what the hate for this hat is. You know, it goes throughout this movie, as, as we'll see. And yes, it's not a traditional cowboy hat, but I've seen plenty of movies where people are wearing bowler hats and top hats, etc. So I'm not quite sure what the hate is for, for this hat. And we find out that the hat, in fact, is the, the last thing that Mississippi has to remember of Johnny Diamond. And so he won't be giving it up anytime soon. Uh, we find out that Johnny Diamond was the man that raised him and was a gambler on a riverboat. And 
when pressed on whether he'll learn to use a gun, Mississippi begins to tell Cole that Johnny Diamond didn't believe in guns. And he's cut short by the Duke with the very sobering truth, he's dead. Think about that. So I'm not sure what a gun would have done if there were four of them after him, but the point is still there. The, the Duke gets ready to leave, and as Mississippi begins to ask whether he can partner up with him, he's cut down with a very short, very direct no. And I admit that even in my personal life, I mimic this very line and just the mannerisms of how the Duke does it. It's, it's just a great delivery. Uh, it's just a little guilty pleasure of mine, of my own. Uh, he is nice enough, however, to pay for supper. However, before walking away, and we, we end our scene with Mississippi sitting there wondering what he's going to do next with his life. So what happens next? Will Pedro let us in on whatever the joke is? Will Mississippi grab the money and dine and dash? Will the movie become a revenge movie for Milton Pedro? Find out this and more when we return next time with Elder Pado. But until then, as always, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Support Your Local Podcast. Please take the time to like and follow us there. If you have a free moment, something that is absolutely free but can help me out a great deal is rating and reviewing us on whatever podcatcher you find us on. Uh, but until we meet again, folks, I love you. Please, 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 forever and always, support your local podcast. And when his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be? This land called El Dorado. Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Ride, boldly ride, the shade replied. If you search for El Dorado, 